Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the very first She Said, She Said of, ni of 1974. <laughs> How about 2022? I have done a serious time warp today, that is for sure. I'm Lena Stagg, the culinary chef and author of the four book series, Recipe Records Cookbooks. You can collect fab, fun, rock and roll ideas and delight all of your senses. They're made to be used in the kitchen where as you rattle those pots and pans, you can listen to great music lists suggested for each recipe. You can smell the exotic aromas of dishes such as I am the eggs man and authentic Liverpool Scouse recipe, Yay. which was sent by one of our wonderful guests today. And you can enjoy these with your family, friends, and set it all up for a wonderful evening, uh, just enjoying rock and roll and great food. You can also learn about the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Foo Fighters, and so many other groups and rock stars that scan the history and trivia pages of these cookbooks. It's all there in the Recipe Records series. I invite you to check out these truly sensory books and my little dog series of cookbooks as well at lanastag.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter. Hi guys, I have to tell you, I second everything that Lena just said. And in case you've never seen the Recipe Records cookbooks, this is the original book that first came out that spans music from the 50s up through the 90s. She'll be doing one very shortly, I'm sure, on the music of the 2020s because it's our new favorite. Then there's the book of the 60s. These are the things your mama used to make and you love. And of course, our boys, the Beatles, great recipe, strawberry pie forever. My mom's strawberry pie is in there. And then the bad boys of rock and roll, although we all know nobody was badder than the Beatles. I mean, we have to be honest about this. But this is the Rolling Stones, Let's Spin the Bite Together. And they are magnificent. And by the way, I'm Lena's sidekick, Jude Sutherland Kessler, speaking with her voice. Susan will know what I'm saying when I say that. And um, I'm the author of the John Lennon series. It is a nine volume series, which will cover John's entire life from his birth in 1940 up to December of 1980. We are currently in the brand new book that was released uh, towards the end of October in 1965. This one is Shades of Life Part One, because it only takes you for the, through the first eight months of 1965 and you say, why didn't you make a whole year? Well, because it was a busy year. They made the movie Help and its accompanying soundtrack. They went on the European tour in June to Spain, Italy, and France. They were nominated for the MBE. When John comes into the studio to make Help, he's talked into making it into a rock and roll song instead of the beautiful ballad that it was. But seven weeks later, Paul comes into the studio with a beautiful ballad yesterday, and he's allowed to record it as is. And not only that, but solo. And there are riffs that are starting to form in the group. 
Um, also, John and Cynthia are struggling in their marriage and LSD comes into play for the very first time and changes the whole picture. So there is a lot going on in the first eight months of 1965. So you can check it out, read a sample chapter and a sample of all the other books at johnlennonseries.com. But enough about us and our gratuitous ads. Let's move on to the important part of the show, which is our very distinguished guest today. We are really honored to have these people with us because they're not only noted tour guides and authors, but they are also some of our closest friends on planet Earth. So we are so glad to have them with us today. One of them hails from the metropolis of London, England. One hails from my favorite city on the globe, Liverpool, as it were. And one hails from the city so nice, they had to name it twice, New York, New York. Isn't that right, Lena? That is right. Our first guest this evening hails from the busy cosmopolitan city of London, where he has been a Beatles tour guide for the past 30 years. Woo! Tours are legendary, and he's been recognized for the excellence of his work on Sky News, BBC Breakfast News, BBC London, and so many other respected programs, as well as being celebrated in print via The Guardian, The London Evening Standard, The New York Times, The Chicago Tribune, Miami Herald, and many, many, many other newspapers, journals, and magazines. In 2009, he published The Respected Guide, The Beatles, London. And on top of all of that, and there's more, he's one heck of a great guy. So we are thrilled to have for you the first time on She Said, She Said, the amazing Richard Porter. Welcome, Richard. Welcome, well, thank you, and uh, welcome everyone, and thank you very much for having me today. Richard, we're so delighted that you're here with us from Studio Two. Yes. <laughs> so, well, actually, I'm at home, but I've, I've been in Studio Two a few times. I thought it'd be a nice backdrop. That's very <laughs> cool. Look, I'm sitting at a piano, doesn't it, in the studio, yeah. <laughs> the famous stairs behind me, yeah. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you very much. Cheers. So Richard, we're very delighted to have you join us all the way from the UK. And there is someone else waiting in the wings from your homeland as well. He's the author yes. of so many remarkable Beatles books. He is such a special guy to us. His first was the classic study of how Liverpool affected and produced the magical band known as the Beatles and the definitive look at the city on the Mercy. Aptly titled Liverpool, the book tells you all you want to know about the city, including, including famous people and places. To quote the staple singers, it takes you there. <laughs> No less brilliant is his Fab 104 about all of the smart, talented, crucial people who influenced John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and 2020's wonderful country of Liverpool explores the vast influence of country music. Amazing. In all of its various iterations of the Beatles. A study that is really fascinating and had never been done before. 
And now with Fab Four Cities, he is bringing us yet another great study of his unique hometown and another look at the cultures and ties that made the Beatles, well, the Beatles. <laughs> That's right. And I have to, I had to butt in and say this myself because I remember the very first time that I saw the film that he produced and at points in the, in the film also stars in called Looking for Lennon. And I just kept going, oh my gosh, that's right. Oh my gosh, that's right too. Uh, and that's right too. It is one of the few, maybe the only film that actually tells you the true story of John's childhood and his teen years telling you the backstory about why Julia had to leave John with Mimi. It is one of the best, well, I, I think the best film made on John Lennon, and it's called Looking for Lennon. And it was so brilliant that we immediately invited him to be our featured artist at the Beatles of the Ridge oh. Beatles Symposium. Lena and I are just thrilled to welcome to the show today our dear friend, Dave Bedford. <laughs> oh, it's good to be here. It's good to be here. Love to see you again. Seems so long ago. I know. Um, <laughs> it was ages ago. One honorary scouser over there in Jude. Thank you. Thank you. I miss it so much. I just, I can't believe it has been, the last time I was there was 2000. It's been 21 years. It's changed quite a lot since you I were know. here. I yeah. know. You I don't know if I'll ever over. go anywhere again. I'm beginning to think this is going to go on forever, you know. Oh, don't worry. You'll, you'll be back. You'll be back. Don't All worry. Right. You've got to be here as well. Come on. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And last, but in no way least, Jude and I feel very blessed to have one of our dearest friends and mentors on the program, a lady who inspired Jude to write the John Lennon series. This is and true. And has served brilliantly as the MC for the Beatles at the Ridge Festival, where she was amazing, as well as being one of the hosts and MCs for the Fest for Beatles fans and for the White Album Conference at Monmouth University in 2018, which seems like it was an age ago. She is an experienced tour guide of, the, of John Lennon's New York City. In fact, I took her tour and loved it and highly recommend it. And in that role, she co-starred in the 2007 documentary video, John Lennon's New York, which can take those of you at home on that self-same tour for, from the comfort of your sofa. Over the years, she's also been the founder and editor for Rooftop Sessions, a collective for Beatles fans, for Beatles fan fiction. She owns and runs Fab Four NYC walking tours. And in her spare time, <laughs> is not sleeping. She serves, she serves as editor for many noted Beatles books. And now all of her varied experiences have brought to the forefront, have been brought to the forefront as she co-authored Fab Four Cities with these two lovely gentlemen. We are so very happy and smiling to welcome to She Said, She Said, our quite cool and multi-talented friend, Susan Ryan. Well, I'm really glad to be here. It's been way too long since we've all been in the same place. Um, it's been a while since we've seen each other, uh, close to two years. 
uh, at least due to Lena, um, Richard and David and I managed to see each other because we got a, my husband and I got a trip in right before the COVID hit the fan. Oh. We were in London and Liverpool in February of 2020, if you can believe it. And 10 days after we got home, forget it. But anyway, um, I'm really glad to be here. Really uh, grateful for all the lovely things that Lena and Judith have said. You embarrass me. You humble me. Um, and um, I'm, I'm anxious to be talking about our book and our tours and just having a wonderful conversation here tonight, really enjoying um, seeing everybody and hoping that uh, those people who are watching this really enjoy it as well. Well, we are thrilled to have you here. And I have to say, this is their wonderful book. Um, I read it cover to cover. As you go through here, you'll see underlines and circles and stars and hearts and I have to say to everyone listening, this is a tremendous book. I had COVID when I was reading it and I felt pretty awful. And it made me feel as if I were not in my bed sick, that I was in the heart of New York City, that I was walking the streets of Liverpool again, down Renshaw and Romilly, and that feeling that you get when you breathe the Mersey air. And I felt like I was exploring all of the places in London that I've been working on in Shades of Life. And I just, you three are to be complimented. This is a really great book. And as you can see, it's a gatefold, so you can use it as your uh, bookmarker. It is a hard paperback. It's a beautiful work, and it's small enough if you're touring the cities to fit into a you know, purse or a knapsack or a rucksack, as Ivor Davis would say. And um, it is just really, really fantastic. And Dave, I'm guessing that you wrote the Liverpool section. Am I right about that? Uh, actually, no, I'll let Richard do Liverpool. I've done New York and, and Susan's done London. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, I've done Liverpool. I, I thought I'd catch you out, you see. That's just like the time that I ordered a bourbon and Coke in, what is the Italian restaurant that's at Whitechapel? And oh, the, Castro Italia? Yes. And the guy comes and puts my drink down and says, you're Scotch and Coke and walks off. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Then he just started laughing. <laughs> well, yeah, listen, you take us on this vivid tour of Liverpool. It's up close and personal. It reminded me of in 1993, Paul Beasley, whom I'm sure that you know. Well, uh, I do a podcast with Paul. Oh, you do? Yeah. I he, yeah, he took us on our first walking tour of Liverpool and it, I'll never forget it. And that's exactly how you made me feel when I was reading this. You not only told about the place with the Beatles, but you also gave an extensive history we learned a lot, things that I never knew before. So will you do that for us for the cavern and kind of make the cavern come alive for us? I mean, I think most people know the Beatles played there 292 times or over that. There's, you know, some little question mark, but Who knows? okay. Yeah, tell us about the cavern. Well, the, the original cavern, of course, was demolished back in 73, despite protests. Um, it's still held up as one of the worst decisions Liverpool City Council's ever made. And trust me, they've made a lot of bad decisions. But, and still do to this day, which is quite remarkable. Um, but the original cavern, of course, me being so young, I, I was only 
eight years old when that was pulled down. So, of course, I missed all the Beatles stuff. So that's why I'm so interested in the history, because I wasn't there. And I've spoken to so many people who attended the cavern. Now, one famous story from my mother-in-law is one lunchtime, her and a friend from work decided to go and see the Beatles at lunchtime. And they went down, and of course, the, the ladies back then had the beehive haircuts. Uh, it was all done like sugar soap and all kinds of stuff. Now, the, the cavern was an absolute, it was a death trap. It was an old vegetable warehouse in the basement. There was only one way in and out through these 18 stone steps. No fresh air, sweat, condensation, cigarette smoke, all that. So my lovely mother-in-law got halfway down the steps. The heat hit her and the hair started to wilt. So she turned around and went back out again and never got to see them. Oh, no. She never went back. Oh. Just because of it. Just because of her hair. Her hair too. Uh, but, that's the saddest that's, story I've ever heard. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but the place was yeah it, it was a nightmare because it was just this old abandoned warehouse that still smelled of the old vegetables and stuff that used to store down there it wasn't made for five or six hundred people to be down there dancing so when you got down there this haze hit you and it'd be cigarette smoke it'd be condensation body sweat they'd have these rotten toilets and I'll be as tactful as I can with this. Uh, but a, a good friend of mine said to me, when you went into the gents' toilets, because they overflowed most days, they had a couple of bricks down and they put a plank of wood on top so your shoes wouldn't get ruined. So because of, yeah. So you, you're getting, getting the, the sense of the smells, aren't you? So to kill all the smells of the toilets, you had this um, really strong pine disinfectant that they put down. Of course, the mixture of the chemicals was quite lethal as well. And of course, back then, there was no alcohol served in, in clubs like the Cavern. It was tea, coffee, Coca-Cola. You get soup and, and a roll. You had to be wanting to see the band and listen to the music. That was the whole point of these clubs. Virtually all of them were alcohol-free. Mm -hmm. So you were only going there for the music. And you'd be insane if you went in there for any other reason. Because if there was a fire hazard of something like that, they only got the, the one way out. So it, it was a nightmare, but for everybody who was there and said the feeling was amazing. The atmosphere with everybody in there, you know, and to see the Beatles, you know, I say getting on for 300 times, they appeared there. And you think about it, you know, in two and a half years, that's how many times they played in two and a half years, nearly 300 times. Wow. And of course their debut, and this is where, the connection sort of started for us. The debut was the 9th of February, 1961. And what yep. were they doing exactly three years later? Uh, apparently they've been formed on a television show in another country somewhere. Who knows? <laughs> Ed that, somebody. Yeah, Ed, Ed exactly. someone. Yeah, yeah Ed, Ed someone. <laughs> but but that, that's how we sort of, we got into doing all this. Um, it was knowing these stories and, and how pivotal the cavern was you know, it's crucial. That's for those who attended right through that that period. They saw these lads in their scruffy black leathers, who were this really early rock and roll band. The sound was unbelievable. You got Pete Best thumping that drum, all pounding on the bass. The noise was incredible. By the time they finish in August '63, 
You know, it's John Paul George and Ringo in their nice suits. And the cavern hasn't improved because partway through the electrics fuse. So it, it wasn't the greatest place, but it was the greatest place. It, it was so important. And all those people who've told me those stories, I think it's when you get told about the smells, it's something yeah. about it, it's, it's, you can sort of picture it because you've seen the photos. And of course, there's a recreated cavern there now. And the good thing about it is they've used, there was like 15,000 of the original bricks because when the other one was demolished, they just filled it in. So they used a lot of the original bricks. So the dimensions of the tunnels are right. They're at 90 degrees to where the original was. Unfortunately, it's not as good because the toilets don't overflow. There's no cigarette smoke. There's no condensation. So actually, it is it's quite nice. And the weirdest thing, the weirdest thing about it was people in Liverpool have argued ever since it was pulled down as to where the entrance cavern was. And uh, I remember Bill Heckle, director at the cavern, found a photo from Bob Wooler looking out up the steps into Matthew Street and realised exactly where the original cavern entrance was. And by coincidence, it's the fire exit to the current cavern club. Now, nobody knew that until they found that photograph. But even with that evidence, some people in Liverpool will, till, will still swear it's further up, up or down Matthew Street, even though we know for a fact that that's where it was. But it is the fire exit. The Today, the fire exit is the original entrance. That is the original entrance. So that they've got a lovely photo of Paddy Delaney, who's like full size on the fire exit, where you can actually say that's where he stood. That's See, I've been there was. 25 times and no one ever told me that. That was the first time I ever heard that when I read it in the book. Yeah. So <laughs> blew me away. All right, I'm going to read you a quote from page, looks like 36, if I can read correctly. And I want you to tell me who said this and what, don't peek, and what they were, <laughs> what they were referring to. All right, I'll read it in not my voice. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome to the, we're the Quarrymen and we're going to play you some rock and roll. Who oh, said yeah. I know that's Mr. John Lennon Esquire, <laughs> he of the Quarrymen, the opening day of the Casbah Coffee Club, 29th of August, 1959. And of course, what happened seven years later to the day? Candlestick Park, San Francisco, the Beatles' oh. last concert. See, so I climate, love these connections you guys yeah. made. You do this all through the book. It's so exactly. awesome. Yeah. That, that's, that was the fun of it. It's, it's making all those connections and coincidences. There's so many of them. But that was it, 29th of August, 1959. John Paul George and Ken Brown opened the Casbah Coffee Club. And I know we've just been talking about the cavern, but really, for me, the Casbah is the birthplace of the Beatles. Because with Mona Best there, putting these gigs on. When they first come back from Hamburg at the end of 1960, the Casbah is the place that, that they first play. The reason that they ended up in the cavern is because Mona Best rang Ray McFall at the cavern and said, I've got this great group, they'll go down and treat. And so Mona actually got them into the cavern. So they were actually at the Casbah first and that was their base really until you're getting into 62. Because um, of course the Casbah closed in the June of 62. Brian was then manager, things started changing, but they were still using the Casbah as a base, even after um, Pete Best had, had left in the August of 62. So really, that place, because it's still authentic, 
when you, when you go, and I've been hundreds of times, and it is like walking back in time. It's absolutely incredible. Really, yeah. got this whole ceiling that John Lennon hand painted. You just put your hand up and you touch it. Got the ceiling that, that Paul painted. Got the the walls that George, uh, Pete, Cynthia, Stu Sutcliffe, all were involved in painting this place. It's absolutely incredible. So I I love the Casbah. Yeah, me too. I, and I only got to see it from the outside um, when I was there. It rogue met us out there on a bitterly cold day. We did not get to go in. We only got pictures of the outside. And at that time, it was not restored. So, you know, it was, yeah, it's, it's I would love to go back and see it inside. All right, Dave, because you wrote both Liddy Pool and the Liverpool section of this book, I'm going to give you some rapid fire questions and you tell me what place I'm describing. Are you ready? Go on. All right, first one. Landscape designers used this place as the template for New York City Central Park. Ah, no, that one. Easy peasy. Birkenhead <laughs> Park. So, <laughs> Birkenhead's on the Wirral, which is the, the peninsula opposite Liverpool. So if you go on the ferry across the Mersey from the Pierhead, you go across the Birkenhead, uh, or Brokenhead as we like to call it. Um, and yep, yeah, it was the first public park that, that was financed by the public. Uh, opened back in 1847, I think it was. And it was visited by uh, the American garden designer. And he liked the idea, took it back. And then when he got the contract for the designing of Central Park, they used the template of Birkenhead Park um, yeah. for Central Park. And it's part of Port Sunlight. And, you know, when I stay in the hotel in Liverpool, they always left us flyers for Port Sunlight. I'm like, I don't want to go out to Port Sunlight. What do I care about Port Sunlight? I want to see the Beatles places. Well, little did I know, <laughs> it is a Beatles place. And you tell that in the book. Well, exactly. And it's amazing when people come on Beatles tours and I always try and say to them, look, when you come into Liverpool, don't just pop in for a day. You know, you've got to come and stay here for a few days. There's so much to see. Yeah. Um, the most I've ever done as a private tour is seven days. Wow. You know, and we've been, we went absolutely everywhere. Went out wow. to North Wales, down to Chester, all kinds of places. Wow. They, well, it, it, you know so much history that I didn't know from reading this. All right, here's another one. This one's even easier, but anyway. Okay. Alan Williams was inspired to create and open a new club in Liverpool based on what venue in Hamburg? Ah, that's the top 10. Very, very, <laughs> yeah. very, very short-lived was the top 10. Um, remember the first time I met Alan and he was telling me all about it. And a lot of people thought because it burned down very soon after opening, he said, oh, no, it's, it's an insurance job. Um, but it wasn't. Alan lost a lot of money on that. He, he really did. We'll have to talk was, about that after the show. Oh, yes. He loves talking about that. <laughs> yeah. But the plan was the top 10 was going to be, you know, the same thing in Liverpool, like in Hamburg. The Beatles were going to be the, the main band. Bob Wooler was going to be the compare. It was all set up. I mean, it was in the wrong part of town, unfortunately. Yeah. It was oh, a little yeah. bit further out. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it would have been nice. But, again, it's those connections, and particularly with Alan, you know, Hamburg and Liverpool, that he's the one who connects the two. And without Alan Williams, and I'm glad the last time I saw Alan, shortly before he died, I, I said to him, Alan, you do realise that if you hadn't have done what you did in 1960, we wouldn't have the Beatles. No. No, so, he, he's not, he has ignored 
really and truly somebody needs to write this Alan story because he not only got them their first gigs and starting with the Jacaranda, but without him and the Mac Chow thing, they wouldn't have been the Beatles. You know, they were standing around like wooden Indians. So, you know, yep. he's important. All right, last one. This Liverpool pub was the place where the Beatles used to pick up their pay packets on a Friday afternoon from Brian. And as far as I know, it is the only one that has not been redone. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of them in the area that haven't been redone. Um, but two of the authentic ones, you've got to get the, the famous grapes sort of, and the, the white star just around the corner. Again, just around the, the bottom of Matthew Street. This sort of links in with what I was saying before about the cavern was because the cavern, you know, and the iron door was close by and all these other clubs, there was no alcohol in there. If you wanted alcohol, you'd go to the pub before and after. And the, the grapes is because Matthew Street, when you get to see Matthew Street again, it is so, so different um, and not all good. It's been overtaken by so many bars and, and stuff. It's, it's lost, I think, some of its character. Because the grapes was the was the original, you know, it's been there for hundreds of years. There's that great photo which is up on the wall in there, um, John Paul George and Pete, and they're sitting there, and they used to have their, their little snug in the corner where they sit. Uh, it was near enough, but by the toilet, so they could see the girls going in and out. I, I have no <laughs> idea why, no idea why. Um, <clears throat> but you can go and you can go and sit exactly where they sat, um, and it's had a makeover but it still feels authentic. That yeah. was where all the musicians used to go. The yeah. bit of Dutch courage or an excuse for a drink. I used to, uh, we went several years before they did the interior punch up. And it was when the Blue Tail fireplace was there and yeah. all of the original stuff and the, the court crew tables and, uh, you know, where they used to put the wet beer mats up on the yeah. ceiling. And it was, it's a great, I love the grapes. I really oh, do. And the, and the White Star as well. A gentleman yeah. asked me in the White Star to watch his metal box while he went to the loo. And Rand comes up to the table and goes, what are you doing? And I said, this man asked me to watch this metal box for him. He was like, are you insane? <laughs> And I said, if I'm going to get blown up, I want to get blown up right here in the White Star. So I don't think he was quite ready to go yet. All right, we're going to skip the <laughs> next one and move on because we have to think about our time. But listen, I have to tell you, great job. I, your writing is magnificent. I loved the Liverpool section. It just made it, I don't know. I felt like I was there again and I really Good. miss it very much. So you even take us out of the city. We go to Latham Hall and we go to Litherland. And you don't just concentrate on Liverpool proper, but you bring yeah. in the environment. So thank you for a great job on that. Pleasure. All right, Lena. Like Tala. <laughs> Love it. So we're going to move on to uh, this a place that is on a lot of the bucket list for a lot of people. And I'm excited to hear more about this. Uh, Richard and Dave, I believe you both worked on the Hamburg section of the book is that right yeah we went together we went to hamburg together a few years ago and had a, had a great time shown around by some really nice people and uh saw all the places and it was my first time in hamburg and it was it was th thrilling just being there and seeing all these places and they're so close together as well which surprised me i mean it's grosser fright height it's only a very short street 
You, you didn't get arrested for anything while you were there. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I must have. We, we did walk down Herbert Strasse, I must admit, but. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. But, uh, we weren't arrested, no. So, so your, your book it certainly gives us great, all of the great places to look at and the photos for those who must tour from their home. You also give a detailed history of each location with stories that we'll never forget. I mean, I knew the Beatles had performed at the Star Club, but I didn't realize that Jerry Lee Lewis, Ray Charles, the Everly Brothers, and Gene Vincent had also headlined there as well. And I didn't know the full story of the Star Club tapes. So Richard, tell us a little bit more about the recording of that. Well, that's quite a long story. It's well, December 62. Uh, it's really the, the last week in Hamburg. And uh, the, uh, the guy that's uh, set up the tape was Adrian, Dumb Adrian Barber and King Size Taylor of King Size Taylor and the Dominoes. And um, basically, it, a lot of people thought it was just uh, the, the last night, New Year's Eve, 62. But actually, it was recorded over about a week or so on, on several gigs. And people just turned the tapes on. The, the uh, tape recorder sat up on the table, and someone just you know, put, put, pushed the on button when, when the Beatles are on stage. And uh, it's, it's, it, a lot of songs were, were recorded, and it's the Beatles basically doing cover versions still. It, not even really doing their sort of set at the cavern. They were going back to the their old rock and roll stuff from like two years before almost, but really showing their raw power. And of course, Ringo's with them by then of course and um yeah the Beatles themselves didn't like it very much and they, they've been trying to stop it for god knows how long and uh George Harrison appeared in court to try and stop it and he said it, it was uh some drunks recording some other drunks <laughs> and trying to stop the whole thing I think, which I think uh, is incredible I think the, the music's brilliant and it you got even the Fasher brothers coming on stage you know the, the horse, horse and Reed Fasher and uh, coming on stage and doing a couple of songs. And uh, oh, it's just brilliant. And of course, uh, Alan Williams got involved with, with Kinsize Taylor, trying to uh, sell the tapes to the Beatles and other people. And for a long time, the tapes were just stuck in this um, basement of a derelict building in Liverpool. And they managed to get into this building and um, get the tapes out. <laughs> They've been damaged, apparently. Lucky that they're, they're, they're salvageable. So now we've got the also we've got the handbook, we've got the Star Club tapes. But it's funny that uh, it came out on this uh, country called Linus Song. I think the original people that bought it out, and uh, because the because the Beatles had their contract already with uh, EMI, which start, obviously started in June '62. Uh, the Linus Song people said the tapes were made in April '62 on their trip before obviously before with pete but with uh with uh ringo star sitting in for pete best and of course making it before they got the recording contract which is a total lie i knew the lie i'm sure but it's a total lie oh my god and uh it, you know it, 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 you can oh. talk for hours just about the, the the star club tapes but listen to the music i mean it's, it's the only recording of the beatles you know live at the time and it just—it's absolutely brilliant. So I don't know why the Beatles try and stop it all the time. It's—I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have great photographs in your book um, of 
from Hamburg and um, pictures of the, the Indra and the Kaiser Keller. And so I know that they, as you'd mentioned, they had gone back to Hamburg in 1965. So Dave, tell us a little bit more of what happened when they returned to Hamburg in 1965. No, Richard. Oh, Dave, yeah, Dave, yeah. Okay, wait a minute, hang on, Dave, just one second. We cut out. Okay, try it again. No, Dave's still not. Yeah, he's I know, that's only me, because I'm just messing about. Okay. <laughs> You, you should know this by now. Don't work with me. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Moving swiftly along. <laughs> it's a good job we're not in the same place. You'd be slapping me by now, wouldn't you? No, uh, I wouldn't be enjoying <laughs> it. Are they, uh, either one of these, what you're talking about, though? I know that it's a different one. Um, yeah. When it first, first came out, um, as Richard was saying, on Lingersong, was it 77? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, then other recordings have come out, and that they're the, the recordings they made with Tony Sheridan. Um, some in 61 oh, okay. and some in, in 62. Okay. Before. I thought maybe I had something valuable there for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're still valuable. Don't worry. They're great. They're great. Um, all right. Sorry to interrupt. Go. That's all right. So, so, so the Beatles came back. It's actually in the summer of uh, June 66. Um, they came back on the Bravo Blitz Tournay. Um, and they were so, so different. When you look at you know, some of those great photographs, um, those amazing ones that Astrid took on that first trip in 1960, some of the best rock and roll photos of any band ever in the black leathers on that fairground. And while Richard and I were there, the fairground was visiting, and it visits, I think it's four times a year. And it coincided while we were there, the fairground. So we actually got to walk around the, the Dom fairground where those photos were wow. taken. Um, again, it, it was just, it was real history. And as Richard was saying, you know, the Grosse Freiheit where all the clubs were is so small. You know, you did one end to the other, you know, in five minutes. Um, it's amazing. But when they came back in 66, of course, they weren't in the Black Leathers playing the, the grotty little clubs. They were this... Uh, Ernst Merkhaler, which sadly has been demolished. Um, so we saw the, the site of where that was. Um, but our, our guys and our, our friends took us around. We went to the, the train station where they arrived. So we have seen that there's plenty of film footage, uh, particularly on YouTube, of them coming off the train, going down through the underpass, etc. So we, we went uh, to that station, down the steps, retraced that, then went into Hamburg as well. Uh, and of course, by now, the John Paul George and Ringo with their suits and it's, it's Beatlemania. So there's just lots and lots and lots of screaming. And there's, there's some really nice footage that's been captured. And, and it is the only film footage of the Beatles in Hamburg. But it was nice that while they were there, they went down to the Grosser Freiheit and they met up with some of their friends from their earlier trips. Um, and again, it, it, there's some bits of film footage out there of that as well so that they were meeting uh, some of the club owners and the, the people that they knew and it was nice for them just to a little bit of a nod to the place really as John said you know we were born in Liverpool but we we grew up in Hamburg right that that was the pl the place and I'm glad they got to go back in a way and do like a, a special thank you 
to Hamburg. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, Richard, so in the book, you have a description of the area in Hamburg in which the Beatles lived and they performed, and it was called the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, the Gross Freiheit? Freiheit, yeah. Um, it was fascinating and very thorough, and we learned that Gross Freiheit means great freedom. Yeah. And spend a good deal of time explaining how this very appropriate term played out in the lives of the Beatles, but also the exes that were in the 1960s. So tell how this name had an application to the lives of so many people that were in this area. About several hundred years, really. That uh, that area was very, the St. Pauli area where Grosser Freitag is, it was very much the um, where people had religious freedom, political freedom. Uh, it goes back until sort of 1700s, I think the name came from. Uh, but even going up to, to the Nazi period, uh, what the, the club that used to be on the site of uh, the Kaiserkeller uh, was a place where people, the, all the young people that liked swing music would congregate, and known as the Swing Kids. This is in, you know, during Nazi Germany when you know, the Nazis didn't like that sort of thing, obviously. And um, they obviously they were persecuted. But as the amazing connection is that when Glenn Miller uh, was, spoke German and he was really popular with these swing kids. And his last ever recording was for the American war effort uh, um, uh, being broadcast into Germany from EMI Studios Abbey Road. Oh, that was wow. his last ever recording made at EMI at Studio Two, in fact. Wow. There is, is another connection there you go, I mean. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, yeah. well, the club that became the Kaiser Keller was, was bombed during the war and was rebuilt. Uh, but that was the site of the Kaiser Keller. So one of these, there's actually a film made a while ago about the so-called swing kids. Yeah. They used to dress sort of either American or British. Aww. So it's, it's, again, there's these amazing connections. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. And I um, should say that the, um, the, the, the kids of the swing kids uh, became the exes. A lot of them became the exes. So there's the connection there as well. Very interesting. Oh, well, there's so much more that we could explore in the Hamburg section of the book. The place, <clears throat> excuse me, the place where the young Savage Beatles brought, bought their leathers and purchased their cowboy boots and met Gibson Kemp, who weaves in and out of their lives, as does Klaus Vormann and Jurgen Vollmer, and of course, Astrid. You cover all of this so well in your book, Fab Four Cities. But because of time constraints, we're going to move on to the London section. And I'm guessing that is your ballywack, right? Yep. <laughs> okay, well, Richard, this was, I wish that you guys had had this book out about a year and a half ago because. You know, Shades of Life Part One, they're in London, everything's taking place there. I could have really used your expertise and the information <laughs> in the book, but I will definitely use it in Shades of Life Part Two. So thank you. thank you very, very much for all of the great info. 
Um, so I, I got a couple of things. You know how I did the rapid fire for Dave? Yeah. Well, I got a couple for you. And the minute that you know the place, and you may know it when I just say the first sentence, just mm -hmm. chime in. So in London, this great tour that you gave us of London, this is the place where all of the Beatles had the photo taken together in the doorway of this building. And Ethan Russell was the photographer. Uh, that's uh, the last picture, one of the last pictures taken at uh, Tittenhurst Park, of course, John Lennon's home, and then Ringo's. They often often swapped out. They used to follow each other around, around London, actually. <laughs> they did. Play. Yeah, <laughs> that was it, that. But, but when they went out to Weybridge, sorry, they were together too, right? Sunny Heights and Kenwood, they were just yeah. like... Yeah. And uh, Montague Square as well. The, the apartment in Montague Square, it was Ringo's and then John. Well, well anyway, Tittenhurst was then John's and then, then Ringo's. It's that way around. But <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the next one. This one to me was so, so interesting. Um, it's in the section of the concerts in London. So mm. this was the site of the Beatles' first concert as headliners. And it was very strange. And I'll let you tell the very strange part about yeah, it. Yeah, Leighton Swimming Baths. Uh, it has to be said that London, even though it's about 10 times the size of Liverpool, had about a tenth of the number of music venues. And when the Beatles played in London, they played in places like cinemas. But some, this place was actually an indoor swimming pool. <laughs> and they would put boards over the swimming pool like once a week and have concerts there and all the bands i mean the rolling stones played there all the bands played at this latent swimming baths and that, that was the first sort of headline this was april 63 i mean brian epstein really kept them out of london until they were really really popular you would have thought they might have gone long before that but the that was the first gig as headliners was april 63. wow that's amazing really when you think about yeah. it Mm. You know, and and I don't think that's too good for the equipment to be above the pool. No, I mean that could have ended disastrously. Yeah, oh, it's <laughs> the only thing that happened backstage. That that photographer was backstage and took a picture of the Beatles. But just before the picture was taken, uh, uh, Paul McCartney squirted some toothpaste onto his trouser leg, and you can see oh. Paul trying to cover up this this toothpaste. And there's been there's rumors that the stain was actually something else, but it wasn't. It was the toothpaste. They, <laughs> Use your imaginations did. on that one. Oh my god. <laughs> Paul did not know the Tom Paul Sutherland rule, which is that's my dad. <laughs> that you cannot put on your shirt until you have brushed your teeth. That was the big rule in our house. We should have passed that along. Okay, I'm gonna ask you a lengthier question and one that I think is really pivotal for the Beatles. Um you know, they, they end up playing in the autumn of 19, was it 62, 63, Sunday night at the London Palladium, they, yes. uh, right before they played the Royal Command performance. Yes. And to me, Off this was stage. a turning point because Ringo's aunt had always said, play the Palladium and die. You know, yeah. once you played the Palladium, you have made it in this world. Yeah. There's nothing else for you to do. Just move on to the next. So yeah. do you... Tell us about the Palladium and do you see it as as pivotal as I feel that it was? Uh, it was fairly, but yes, I mean, they Beatles have been on TV before this, but the Palladium is a TV show Sunday night at the London Palladium. 
which is very similar to the Ed Sullivan show. Right. Uh, it's very much a variety show with, you know, what normally one act appealing to teenagers. In fact, Buddy Holly and the Crickets um, played their first ever gig in England at the uh, at the Palladium uh, on on the show. So wow. it's been going quite a long time, and the Beatles topped the bill. And um, but uh, there's lots of screaming girls outside, and uh, this has been going on around the Beatles for a long time. But uh, it's the first time really the Beatles have played in central London. So they've been playing in these places like, like, um, you know, like uh, Layson before. So uh, only just down the road was Fleet Street, where all the national newspapers were. And that's been a low news day. So virtually every newspaper sent reporters and photographers down to the Palladium to see what was going on. And next day, the Beatles and their fans were front page news in virtually every newspaper. And people have said that's where Beatlemania began, when actually the term wasn't used for another couple of weeks later. That's another story. <laughs> but I think it did change things. And um, yeah, they, they, the Beatles were, you know, public property after that, really. Wow, that is amazing. I, and so there was it was kind of the first time they really noticed Beatlemania. Yes. It really came to the fore. The general public. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. One of my, it's kind of a yucky story, but it tells you how much it meant to them is that right before they went on stage at the Palladium, Ringo threw up in a bucket backstage. That's how yeah. nervous he was. You know, so much emphasis had been put on playing the Palladium that he was, I don't know that he ever did that again. I know John threw up a couple of times, but this was, he was definitely nervous. Well, there was a connection to New York with the Palladium. Was it the Buddy Holly performance or what was the big connection with New York? Well, it's just after, really, because, as I said, Beatlemania just kind of started. And a couple of weeks after the Palladium show, uh, the Beatles flew out to Sweden on their first overseas trip uh, after Beatlemania. And when they came back into London Airport, loads of fans were there. That's and, it. and it's the first time this had happened and there's lots of flights were delayed. And one of those flights was going to New York. And on that flight was Ed Sullivan, who, who uh, he thought it was the royal family or something was delaying everyone. And it, it's been, well, it's, this might be a bit of legend. Apparently he asked a stewardess, you know, who it was. And she said, it's, it's the Beatles, sir. And he said, who's the Beatles? Yeah. And of course, he found out. <laughs> And just a few he weeks did. later, of course, Ed Sullivan went to, 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 sorry, Brian Epstein went to see Ed Sullivan in New York and got them on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, it's amazing. You, you guys do this all through the book. You have yeah. inserts, the Fab Four connections, and you talk about the link between the place and the other cities. And mm -hmm. it really gave me goosebumps because there are so many uncanny connections so speaking of New York City, we're going to shift gears and we're going to turn our attention to my closely tied with Liverpool favorite place on the planet, New York City. And this part was written by our dear friend, Susan Ryan. And Lena and I were, we both wanted to interview you, Susan, and we were going to have this arm wrestling contest. But two things got rid of the arm wrestling contest. Number one, COVID. Number two, Lena is lifting like a maniac. I think she she deadlifted 188 pounds. Is that right, Lena? Recently, and so ain't no way I'm gonna be arm wrestling Lena Stag on the face of the earth. 
So she's going to pop in right now and ask you the first few questions, and then I'll be back in a little bit. So take it away, 188 dead left pounds, Lena. Absolutely. I, I that's just sort of this byproduct of, of buying a gym. It just sort of just kind of organically started to happen. I don't know. It's just osmosis is kind of because not working out is not my, really my bag. But, <laughs> but Susan, after taking my daughter and my niece, Annie, on your John Lennon New York tour a few years ago, I can't imagine anyone but you writing this segment of the book. You're a lifelong New Yorker, and you know the city better than the back of your hand, and you know the Beatles like the back of your other hand. So it was a win-win for Richard and David to have your input on this. In Fab Four Cities, you, of course, cover the famous New York concert venues such as Carnegie Hall and Shea Stadium. But you also take us to many New York sites that the boys frequently enjoyed that fans know little or nothing about. So if you don't mind, tell us about three of those wonderful sites that one or all of the Beatles frequented places in their lives within New York that aren't widely known about. Uh, three that aren't widely known. I'm trying to think because there are some in the book, but they're, they're not um, vast. I mean, the ones that are more well-known that I could tell you about, I mean, certainly there's the Plaza Hotel and that's very well-known, but that's where the Beatles stayed when they came to New York in 1964 on their first trip to America. And um, they weren't allowed to go back. Um, so people don't always realize that, you know, the Plaza is the hotel that people think of associated with the Beatles. But when they came back again, uh, there were two other hotels that they stayed in. Uh, when they came back in um, the summer of 64 for their um, for their uh, summer tour, for their uh, tour of the United States after they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show months later, they uh, were not allowed to go back to the plaza. Uh, the plaza's elite clientele didn't want them. Uh, they didn't like the hysteria. They didn't like the screaming. They didn't like the girls trying to hide in laundry baskets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so they just didn't want them to come back. So when they came back in the summer of 64, they stayed at what was then the Delmonico Hotel, which is on Fifth Avenue. And it's now actually a building, uh, a, a co-op condo um, building um, owned by Donald Trump, of all people, called the Trump Park Avenue. And uh, people don't realize that that's where they stayed. Um, and uh, then when they came back again in 1965 and 1966 um, to play at Shea Stadium, um, which they were arranged to come to Shea Stadium by Sid Bernstein, uh, who many people who listen to this program probably know about if they didn't actually know him, uh, who was a concert promoter um, who brought the Beatles to Shea Stadium. Uh, he also did something else earlier. He brought them to Carnegie Hall. He was one that arranged for them to get the venue of Carnegie Hall on February 12, 1964. Um, but um, he brought them to play at Shea. They stayed at the Warwick Hotel, which um, is where they stayed ever after when they came to New York. Um, and actually, if you go inside the Warwick um, and you go up the, the stairs to the mezzanine level, there are photographs of people who have lived and stayed there and the Beatles are among the photographs. Aww. So if you go in, like, That's you can make an excuse to go in and use the bathroom because the bathroom is up the mezzanine, um, you know, and they'll let you in, uh, or they used to anyway. Um, 
and you could go see the Warwick Hotel. So those hotels are not as well known. People associate the Beatles with um, the plaza and only the plaza uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, starting with, if you know Beatles history, you know that. Also, if you've ever seen the Steven Spielberg movie, I want to hold your hand, they're trying to get into the plaza hotel. So, you know, that's what people think. So the other hotels are not as well known. And then, of course, there's there's the obvious places, places like uh, Strawberry Field and there's places, but there's also some some venues that you wouldn't think, like uh, Grand Central Terminal, right? Paul McCartney did a surprise gig when he was promoting Egypt Station. They gave away tickets to a concert in Vanderbilt Hall, which is a which was a waiting room at Grand Central Terminal. And you don't think immediately of Grand Central Terminal of being a Beatles or McCartney related place, but he did a live set of music in Grand Central Terminal, gave away. Um, you need a, a metro card, a, a fare card to get on the subway, and they gave away promotional Egypt Station metro cards to people who came to the gig. But you don't think of Grand Central Terminal, which, by the way, is worth seeing Paul McCartney aside. It's really beautiful, yeah. and and you kind of want people to see that. But it, these are places that don't immediately spring to mind when you think of the Beatles or John Lennon or Paul McCartney. Um, and many such little venues or little places or apartments where they live. Um, you know, uh, like one off Sutton place where John Lennon lived with Mae Pang in, in the 70s. Um, you don't think of those places. And those are lesser known than some of the big venues, which are obviously covered in the book as well. And do you take people to those lesser known places when you do the tour? Uh, actually, the only one of those that I mentioned that we actually pass by on our tour is the Warwick. And that's mostly because the tour starts in Midtown on the west side and basically sticks to the west side of Manhattan and goes up to um, and ends at Strawberry Field, um, Strawberry Fields in Central Park. So um, we don't get to some of the places on the east side, but they're easy enough to find on your own. And especially if you have the book, you've got the address. And right. if you're exploring Manhattan, the thing about Manhattan Island is it's very small. So you could technically do Manhattan and see the highlights of it generally in a day. If you give yourself from morning till evening on a nice day, you could even walk most of it. It's not a big island. So we may not go there on my tours, but certainly they're easy enough to find. Right, right. And you brought up the next place. But before we get to that, I want to say that I did not mention the maps. And the maps are so helpful and you can navigate your way and, you know, you can follow the numbers and they coincide with the book. It's so easy to use, but I don't want to tout this as a guidebook because it's much more than a guidebook. It, you know, you had, what was it, Ron Jones, Dave, that did uh, Liverpool, the Liverpool guidebook. It's so much more than, it was a great book in its day. This tells you much more. And that's what I want to ask you, Susan. You know, I think people generally have a view of Strawberry Field. They, they know, you know, it's for John and they kind of know where it is. But you told things that I had never known before. And you made me realize for the first time that the world came together to build this tribute to John. So tell us a little bit more about Strawberry Field. Well, Strawberry Fields, as most people know, is directly across the street from Dakota. And it was back in the day, okay, back when John and Yoko lived in that neighborhood in the mid to late 70s, Central Park wasn't nice. Central Park is beautiful now, but Central Park was, was actually kind of dangerous. And um, there was no such thing as the Central Park Conservancy that took care of the park. And um, it was one of those places where you kind of didn't go after dark, things like that. However, if you went into Central Park in broad daylight, it was fine. And because that part of the park was directly across the street from Dakota, that was where John and Yoko used to take walks. 
that's where they used to, the nanny or they would take Sean when he was a baby for walks and play in the playground. Um, like most New York City kids, okay? He went to Central Park. My kid went to Central Park. It's the same. It's, it's New York's backyard. So that's where you go. Um, and when John um, was killed, um, the city wanted to do something in his memory. Um, New York was very proud and happy that John wanted to live in our city. Uh, I know that I was. I know that I was thrilled that he wanted to live where I lived. Um, and uh, one of the quotes that I mentioned in the book is he talks about if um, you were in ancient Rome, if you were Roman, you wanted to live in Rome. And, if, and New York is the Rome of its day and he wanted to live in New York. And that's why he wanted to come here and be here. So when they were looking for a place to build this memorial for John, um, it was suggested by um, our mayor at the time, Ed Koch, and our um, parks commissioner, Henry Stern at the time, to build this memorial directly across the street from, uh, from Dakota, which became Strawberry Fields. Strawberry Fields with an S. Strawberry Fields with no S's in Liverpool. And I always make that distinction. Um, and they went to Yoko Ono, who and they asked her what she wanted. And she said she wanted some kind of a living memorial um, because she felt Central Park already had enough statues. She didn't want a statue. They originally conceived it as a statue. And um, they worked on the design and then they um, went to countries of the world and asked them to contribute plants and flowers and other materials. This was all Yoko's, Yoko's idea and Yoko's desire. She um, solicited various countries uh, to give things to this memorial. Um, and mostly it was plants and flowers and trees. They're getting better at labeling them now. Um, they weren't always labeled, they did that. And she gave a grant in perpetuity to the Central Park Conservancy to maintain that section of the park. And um, the mosaic, which everybody knows and has seen, uh, was actually donated by Italy. And it's a uh, mosaic of Greco-Roman design um, based on a design from Pompeii. And that was what they wanted there. And it was opened with um, a special ceremony on what would have been John's 45th birthday. But um, it was basically conceived by the mayor and, and the parks commissioner and they went to Yoko for her input. And this is what she wanted. And she brought the countries of the world together in a garden of peace. There is a dedication plaque. If you come in at the bottom end of Strawberry Field, which is inside the park, um, so if you're walking through the park from another direction and not coming in from 72nd Street, you walk up the hill to your right. And there's a, a big boulder, one of the Central Park boulders, with a um, bronze dedication plaque embedded in the rock. And it tells you all the countries that contributed plants, flowers, and other materials to the Garden of Peace. And I think that that makes it a place that is... Um, International, it is a place where um, New Yorkers certainly go to celebrate God. They also go there just to celebrate life. Um, it's a beautiful meditative section of the park. It's it's lovely to go there and have a picnic. Um, and you don't have to know who John was just to know that it's a beautiful place. And when you read about it on the dedication plaque or you see the mosaic, you understand. And you understand what that man meant to the city and what he meant to the world. Yeah, it, I did not know that at all. And I just was very touched by that part of the book. I think it's really an important thing for people to know. So thank you very, very much. Now we're not gonna let you escape the rapid fire. <laughs> so here we go. This is one from me to you, Susan. All right. Should I be scared? Again, <laughs> again, I did not know this at all. I was so blown away. All right, this place, every solo beetle 
except Ringo has performed here. You probably already know what it is. Go, tell us about it. It's Madison Square Garden, which is currently at uh, 33rd Street, 7th Avenue, uh, above Penn Station, uh, the, the new quote-unquote Penn Station because the old one was torn down in the early 60s, probably when I was a baby or before I was born. But anyway, I digress. Madison Square Garden is uh, known as the world's greatest arena. It is currently the third um, venue by that name, the original one being down in Madison Square, but this one moving uptown after several iterations. Um, the concert for Bangladesh happened there. Paul McCartney has played there many times, including on his Wings Over America tour. And um, John, of course, did the one-to-one -one concert. And also his last appearance with Elton John when uh, Thanksgiving weekend of 1974, when um, uh, Elton had bet him uh, that whatever gets you through the night would make number one. And John scoffed at the idea because he'd never had a solo number one. Um, and it, when it went to number one, he made good on the bet. And that was his last public appearance was at Madison Square Garden. Um, it's um, still used for concerts. It's the home of the New York Knicks basketball and the home of the New York Rangers hockey. Um, and um, it's it's still, um, you've, you know you've made it when you played Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it's play Madison Square Garden and die. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Just like the Palladian. All right, Lena, we're gonna hand it back to you. Okay, Susan, so are you ready for a last rapid fire question? I am ready. All right, so all through the book, Dave, Richard, and you give the reader segments called Fab Four Connections, which is brilliant, in which you point out curious and interesting ways that all four cities, Liverpool, Hamburg, London, and New York, are connected. So one of these segments talks about a man who lived in New York City and made a very impressive living there. But this gentleman was also a philanthropist and in the early 1900s, he gave a great deal of money to open libraries in Liverpool. In 1902, he traveled to Liverpool to open the Toxteth Library. So I'm sure you know, know who this gentleman is. So the gentleman in question is Andrew Carnegie. He was a railroad and steel tycoon. Actually, strangely enough, Carnegie Hall being in New York, his name is much more associated with Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You'd be surprised. But in Pittsburgh, there's the Carnegie Libraries and, Car and Carnegie Mellon University and all that stuff because he made most of his fortune in Pittsburgh. But he, in 1891, he endowed um, the building of a concert, ooh, excuse me, a concert hall. And, um, Carnegie Hall was that concert hall. Um, it stands on the corner of 7th Avenue and 57th Street. It is one of the premier concert halls in the world. Um, beautiful, acoustically perfect, um, a fabulous place to see any kind of a show. They do children's concerts, they do festival concerts, they do pop concerts, um, they do other things um, there. And it's, yes, Andrew Carnegie, um, I didn't actually know about the connection with Cox's library until David told me about it, which was kind of interesting because um, he knew about it and I didn't. So there you go. Um, and um, Carnegie Hall has had, of course, the Beatles played there. Right? We mentioned Sid Bernstein earlier, and he brought them to play um, on February 12, 1964, on very short notice. Uh, Brian Epstein wanted 
Beatles to play in New York before they went back to England after their um, appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. And after they went to Washington, D.C., they came back before they left. And because it was Lincoln's birthday back in the day, we had Lincoln's birthday on February 12th, Sid Bernstein was able to get the hall on very short notice because nothing was booked because it was a holiday. Right. And um, they played there as a group. And then um, in the 90s, uh, Paul McCartney's three, three of his four pieces of classical music, um, Liverpool Oratorio, Standing Stone, and Ecce Cormium all had their New York premieres at Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. So it's got quite a connection in terms of the Beatles as a group and in terms of Paul McCartney as a, as a classical composer. Um, so yes, um, it's, it's uh, a beautiful and, and wonderful place. And certainly the legacy that Carne Carnegie Hall is a legacy that Andrew Carnegie left to New York City. That is just, it's so fascinating. So thank you all so, so very much for giving your time to be with us today. Um, so you can really see a lot of the uncanny similarities between these four cosmopolitan port cities, and you see the ties that bind them one to another as well. As you watch one character in the Beatles story crossover from one of the cities to the next, almost seamlessly, you observe how very much alike these places are. It is really, it is a great, um, great picture that you have painted for all of your readers to take in. It is, it really is. And let me uh, hold it up one more time for everyone to see. And I have to say that, you know, I read way too many Beatles books <laughs> and um, some of them are full of great information, but they are only written in an average fashion. And some of them are written beautifully, but there are a lot of mistakes in the book. This book is as factual as it gets. And also it is written beautifully. And um, I just really, I, I did not expect this. I did not know what I was gonna expect, but I didn't know that it would be written as beautifully as it is. And you can, I'll let you look at it. It took me about, three days, I guess, three, three nights to read it. It's not a long read. Don't be daunted. It's not a Jude Sutherland Kessler tone that you can work <laughs> out with. But everybody out there, you need to get yourself a copy whack. This is it. This is the book to get. So it is fab four cities. And we, as Lena said, we appreciate the three of you being here. It's later for you guys, and it is for us in Central Time, and we we very much appreciate you being with us. So thank you. Thank you absolute thank pleasure. You thank you for having thank us. You. We've we've loved talking to you guys and um, being part of this. Well, tell yeah. us how we can how people can get the book and how they can follow you guys on social media. Uh, well, the website we have dedicated for the book. Um, is Beatles Fab Four Cities. The four is a, as a number four. So all in one word, Beatles Fab Number Four Cities.com. Uh, and you go there, you can find out um, profile of each of us, links for our tours, information about the book. But also what we put together on there is um, a Google map of each of the cities. And you can go onto the website and you can go and explore. Wow. Um, all the different cities and you can zoom in and out and there's bits of information on all the locations as well. 
are all of the Beatles in it or just John? Where are all the Beatles? <laughs> I'm waiting for your nine book series on Paul and then George and then Ringo. I mean, you've well, been sticking around for a long time, dude. Which we would be happy about. Susan and I, we didn't even know that the other Beatles were in a hard day's night. We found that out in low about 10 years ago, right, Susan? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. It's been such a joy, and I hope to see you. I hope Omicron gets away, goes away, and we can all be together at the Fest for Beatles fans, yes. April 1 through 3. I hope that I, it, you know, I want it to happen so badly. So until then, stay safe. Don't get out yeah. there and this stuff. I went for one night and got it. So for right now, stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Jude. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Lena. Thanks, everyone. Good to see you. Great. Bye. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you once again to our very, very fab guests. It was just like taking a mini trip to four of the most exciting places on the globe. I loved it. Next month, Look out. Jude and I are going to be talking with author John Borak about his book, The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. Can't wait. We will be doing that show on Tuesday, February 1st. The book is all the buzz and people are agreeing and disagreeing with the choices of what 100 moments mattered most in the Beatles story and in the world. So you might want to give a nod to one of these choices as well. And join us in February um, and find out. <laughs> I said that already, February 1st. So, Mar so good they named it twice. <laughs> <laughs> so March 22nd, watch out because we're going to be chatting with Laura Kortner and Dr. Bill Hieronymus. And they are the authors of the fabulous book, Yellow Submarine. So there's so much more to see and do right here in 2022 on She Said, She Said. Until next time, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, food for the love of rock and roll. Draw and shine on. Yeah.